This week, Monotronics launches dual exchanges and Diebold completes term loan raise. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Latin America. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Director of Credit Research Mark Fisher sits down with senior reporter Jim Holloway to discuss Sanchez Energy and broader trends in ENP, specifically the Eagleford and how changing views on well spacing could affect future production and value. It's Sunday, September 2nd. Ascent Capital Group, parent of Monotronics, announced two exchange offers Thursday evening. The first was for Monotronics $585 million in outstanding 9 and 1 8 senior notes due 2020. The exchange offer includes a modified Dutch auction option for up to $100 million in cash consideration, as well as a securities-only exchange option for those not participating in the Dutch auction and those that participate but fail to bid below the clearing price. Bondholders are asked to bid between $750 and $875 per $1,000 in principle of 2020 notes. The securities being offered include partial cash and pick notes due 2023. The new notes would be structurally senior to the old notes following Monotronic's transfer of, quote, a majority of its assets, which will include a majority of Monotronic's primary revenue-generating contracts, to subsidiaries that guarantee or will guarantee the new notes, but will be designated as unrestricted under the old notes indenture, and which would therefore not guarantee the old notes. The company is also seeking consents to allow this transfer. Ascent separately announced Thursday evening a partial cash tender offer for its almost $97 million in outstanding 4% convertible senior notes due 2020. Total consideration under the Ascent offer would be $645 per $1,000, which includes a $50 early tender premium available to those that tender before September 13th. Total consideration, however, is limited to $63 million, minus the amount by which cash consideration under the Monotronics Exchange exceeds $37 million. Following the announcement on Friday, the ad hoc group of Monotronics bondholders that claim to own more than 65% of the 918's notes signaled their intention to not tender their notes, adding that the tender would, quote, fail because without ad hoc group participation, it will be impossible to satisfy the minimum tender condition or obtain the consents required to amend the indenture. Prior to the company's announced exchange transactions on Monday, holders of and affiliates of holders of 68% of the convertible notes of parent company, Ascent Capital Group, filed a complaint for declaratory relief in the Court of Chancery in Delaware. The plaintiffs include funds affiliated with KLS Diversified Asset Management, Silverback Asset Management, Soundpoint Capital, and White Box Advisors. Commenting on an earlier release by Ascent, the note holders alleged that the proposed liability management transactions show a, quote, blatant disregard for the laws barring fraudulent transfers, since Ascent Capital Group's proposal would use, quote, almost all of its assets to fund its insolvent subsidiary. Diebold announced and later completed a $650 million capital commitment this week for newly established term loan A1 due August 2022, with an anticipated interest rate of LIBOR plus 925 basis points. The company also secured an amendment to its existing credit agreement in the transaction. 
notably increasing permitted leverage and reducing the minimum interest coverage ratio by more than 50%. GSO Capital Partners and CenterBridge lead the new financing, with the balance to be picked up by consenting current lenders. Approximately $250 million of the loan will be used to reduce existing term loans and revolving credit. New money will also cover the cost of buying out minority shareholders in a Diebold subsidiary and paying down the revolver further. In a lender presentation announcing the commitment, Diebold added that for 2019, the company expects to burn approximately $100 million through a combination of free cash flow and optional debt repayments. The company noted that it expects to end 2019 with approximately $300 million in cash. Sources told Reorg that term loan beholders working with King and & Spalding and Perella Weinberg had also submitted their own proposal that they believed offered more favorable financing. $1 billion in new money at LIBOR plus 700 basis points, with no amortization. On Thursday, the Puerto Rico government and the PROMESA Oversight Board announced that they have entered into a planned support agreement signed by AAFAF, the Oversight Board, COFINA, Monolines, Senior and Junior Bondholders, and Bonistas del Patio, consistent with a previously disclosed agreement in principle. According to a planned term sheet, Senior COFINA bond claims would receive a distribution equal to 93% of their aggregate bond claims, and junior Kafina bond claims would receive a distribution equal to approximately 56.4% of their aggregate bond claims, plus, quote, any incremental value distributable as a result of an increase in Kafina cash available for distribution. Milestones under the agreement call for the filing of a plan and disclosure statement for Kafina, as well as a settlement motion resolving the Commonwealth Kafina dispute by October 15th. The plan support agreement also lays out the classes of claims and the proposed treatment in connection with the plan of adjustment for Kafina. A new group of holders of bonds issued or guaranteed by the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico, represented by Morrison and Forster, appears to be replacing the PBA funds group and is, according to sources, in the process of retaining a financial advisor. All five members of the PBA funds group are members of the new seven-member group which in a 2019 file this week disclosed an aggregate of $1.88 billion of constitutional bonds. Furtree Partners holds the most constitutional debt among the group's members, with approximately $715 million, followed by VR Global Partners and Mason Capital Management, both of which were not members of the PBA Funds Group. Also in Puerto Rico, a government plan to leverage the federal government Opportunity Zone designation received by much of the island last year is expected to officially launch in October, Chief of Staff and Commonwealth CFO Raul Maldonado said during a CPA forum in San Juan. Local investment incentives are intended to attract private capital from U.S. investors, and they could raise $1 billion over the next 90 days, he said. Caribbean and Central American-focused mobile phone network provider Digicel is proposing amendments to the covenants of its notes through 2020 and 2022, as it comes to market with an exchange offer to extend maturities and, quote, eliminate substantially all of the restrictive covenants and events of default, end quote, contained in each of the indentures for the outstanding notes. The new bonds will be issued by a subsidiary of Digicel Group, which issued the existing bonds. There are $2 billion of 8 and a quarter 2020 notes outstanding and $1 billion of 7 and 1 eighth 2022 notes. The 2020 notes are the earliest maturity other than the $100 million revolver.
Digicel drew down $46 million on its revolver during the first half of 2018 to invest money into Digicel Holdings Central America, a unit that is expected to reach EBITDA break-even levels by the end of fiscal 2019. Bondholders are being asked to swap into new 8 and a quarter and 7 one eighth pick, 1 and one eighth cash notes due 2022 and 2024. There is $1.3 billion of debt coming due in 2021, which was issued by an entity that is structurally senior to the box issuing the outstanding bonds, and the entity that would be issuing the new bonds. In addition to having their covenants stripped, assuming the exchange goes through, holdouts would be left with bonds that are structurally junior to the new bonds. Bondholders that participate early receive par. Bondholders that participate by the deadline receive 95 cents. Other top red stories of the week were number one, Rex Energy. Penn Energy selected as successful bidder for Rex Assets. Number two, iHeart Debtors file financial projections, valuation, and liquidation analysis exhibits. And number three, First Energy Solutions Debtors announce settlement agreement with First Energy non debtor parties, Ad Hoc Noteholder Group, Mansfield Group, and UCC. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thank you, Karen, and welcome one and all. Summer is over in theory, and so now we're counting down the days to Thanksgiving, which back when I was doing more bond market than oil stuff, tended to mark the end of the year. I don't see a huge amount of things in the calendar this week, but anyways, let's look and see what is in store. And make sure you check our Forward Weekly, which is published Tuesday morning this week at 6.15 a.m. for all the latest. Monday, September 3rd is, of course, the holiday, which was first proposed in 1883 as a holiday for the laboring classes by Mr. P.J. McGuire in New York City. That was back when Gotham had a manufacturing base. Tuesday, September 4th, we'll be watching for the weekly Treasury Single Account Report from Puerto Rico. We also have earnings from cons, and in toys, it looks like Taj and Delaware DS objections are due. And last but not least, American Tire. There's a coupon due. Technically, it was due September 1st, but in light of the weekend and the holiday, today's the day. Wednesday, September 5th, we also have objections. These are in matters related to the Claire's and iHeart cases. Thursday, September 6th, there's a DS hearing for the Toys Delaware and Taj Debtors and an omnibus hearing for Heritage Home Group. And on Friday, September 7th, an evidentiary hearing in ERP Iron Ore. And that's all I see. Karen, back over to you. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Jim Holloway is back to talk energy with Mark Fisher. Handing it to you, Mark. Thank you, Karen. So I'm back again with Jim Holloway, who's now wearing his energy hat and is uh, serving double duty today and going to talk to us about um, EMPs. Specifically, we are going to go over Sanchez Energy, but it's really talk about it in the context of a much broader context where um, how what's going on with Sanchez is affecting overall drilling, particularly in, uh, in, in the Eagleford. Uh, we'll go over some concepts that affect all EMPs, particularly those um, in, in, in that for, uh, aforementioned Eagleford, going over concepts such as horizontal uh, zones and uh, optimal spacing between wells. And these concepts really have an effect on overall valuation and, and future drilling locations. So, Jim, with that, 
Recently, you wrote a uh, really comprehensive piece about uh, Sanchez Energy and the over 4,000 location count that they talk about, and which has actually surprisingly seemed to stay constant over, um, over the prior year, even as they've reported some disappointing results in their Comanche assets. So can you explain how that uh, seemingly discon- uh, disconnection between uh, those two things is possible? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, Sanchez and its 4,000 well locations. Uh, I got interested in the topic um, after a question was uh, posed of uh, to Mr. Tony Sanchez III, the CEO of the company, during their second quarter earnings call. Um, you, Mr. Sanchez, uh, this is how the question went, um, have long advertised a count of over 4,000 drilling locations in the Eagleford. And uh, Mr. Sanchez's answer to that was that the location count uh, was sticks on a map that do exist, and um, that should be in quotation marks. Um, He indicated that the 4,000 count is a 3P count, meaning it represents proved, probable, as well as possible reserves. It's a number that the company puts out once a year, and it is, and I quote, really indifferent to oil prices. Some work at 65 to 70 oil, some at $80 oil, some at 45 oil. Um, That's what uh, Tony said. Eventually, they'll get drilled, but that's not our focal point for the next two to five years of development, unquote. Um, Now, Sanchez, I I got interested just in where he came by this number and and what it it meant. So the first thing I did was look in the 10K. Uh, And they did note in the 10K for uh, 2017 that they had over 8,000 gross and 3,700 net drilling locations. Now, of these, the 10K said, 748 represented proved undeveloped reserves. And uh, this, is, this is in quotes, the additional 7,252 additional gross drilling locations, 3,700 net, are specifically identified as non-proven locations that have been identified by our management team. Okay, so these are locations identified by Sanchez Management. And continuing the quote, although these approximately 7,252 gross additional non-proven locations are determined using the same geologic and engineering methodology as those locations to which proved reserves are attributed, they fail to satisfy all criteria for proven reserves for reasons such as development timing, economic viability at SEC pricing, and production volume certainty, unquote. So um, that's the methodology that the company used. And, and what's a little bit, what's also interesting is that in the fourth quarter call, they mentioned that they added about 800 gross locations. Um, and this was due to some results at a, at a well within their Comanche asset, which they had bought in January of 2017, in which they said confirmed the presence of four targetable zones within that part of the Eagleford. They're over in the western part. Um, so what I think, and, you know, just to, to give you some additional numbers, um, you know, like I said, the 10K for 2017 said 3,700 net locations. The, the second quarter corporate presentation said there were about 4,200. Um, but roughly speaking, uh, the company's count of 4,000 locations really seems a function of acreage times the number of targetable zones, and that would be four by the company's count, um, per uh, times well per drilling spacing unit, or DSU, with a DSU being about 640 acres. Sanchez, when discussing the deal, indicated they were going with 16, uh, with a spacing of 16 per DSU, which in 
supplies lateral spacing between wells of about 600 feet. Um, over time, that's evolved to be the uh, industry standard, more or less, in the Eagleford. Um, what happened, though, is that Sanchez completed some wells that had been spotted by Anadarko, from who had bought the Comanche property, uh, that were at an interval of around 300 feet. And that was the practice in 2014 and earlier. Um, the company experienced some fairly dramatic interference between parent and child wells during that, uh, better known as a frack hit. And though this, along with uh, some other issues, has caused some real problems with the Comanche wells. So it'll be interesting to see if there's going to be an impact on the location counts. Great. And, and let's, let's stick to that and actually explore a couple of topics that, that you mentioned. And I um, talked about in the beginning, the concepts of spacing and zones. Uh, you, you said there are four targetable uh, zones and spacing, whether it be 300 feet from the previous, uh, previously drilled wells or where Sanchez is targeting, 600 um, feet, that spacing really uh, refers to that this parent-child concept or, or the, or the parent-child concept could actually affect results from wells that are spaced too close uh, together. So can you explain that? Because it's been a very hot topic uh, and a lot of calls that I've listened to from EMP companies, this concept of parent-child relationships with the well between wells and how that affects production um yeah sure um parent chi parent child well interference also known as a frack head uh what's that's caused by is the drilling of a new well um also known as a child well near to an older well which um, can be called a parent and this is something that there's more and more of given the advent of pad drilling and other the more uh, other the newer technologies that have been developed here in uh, the North American oil patch but what will happen is that during a frack operation the high pressure you know slurry of water sand and chemicals that is being going into the child well that's being fracked burst from it into the parent well or the old one. And in you, in most cases, the parent well is an already producing one. And what can result is everything from a loss of pressure within that parent well to a damage of all the well hardware, the well head, the tubing, and the casing. And a lot of cases, I think even most cases, it means the production from that well is gone for good. Um, and frack hits are one of the reasons why operators in the Eagleford have moved to spacing of 600 feet between wells. It seems to lessen the likelihood of this. Um, the standard about two years ago, uh, 2014, before the downturn, was closer to 300 feet. And as far as frack hits go, uh, what needs to be observed, there's not really any one solution. It's something that people experience a lot, whether it's in the Eagleford or in the Permian. And nobody has identified a way to dramatically or completely or, you know, reduce the risk. There's so many variables of pressure and geology that it almost varies section by section. But still, one standard is going to be just the wider spacing. Great. So let's jump on to the, the, the next concept that you mentioned, which is the net effective acres. And I believe this relates to the number of zones that are drillable in a given, uh, given location underground. So can you explain uh, what, what, that, what that means, that effective uh, acres? And in, in, in the story that you wrote, you compared it to or you, used, uh, some, you mentioned that some companies have used that as the basis for valuation and paying a particular price per acre. 
Uh, yeah, sure. Net effective acres. Um, that's, that's an interesting metric that seems to have emerged like so much else that's innovative in the, in the industry with uh, Aubrey McClendon of Chesapeake and um, uh, numerous other, other companies. Um, he used it in connection with the Permian Venture. And his argument was, is that there are, you know, seven zones or however many within each of his Permian acres. So what you're getting is not like one acre, but you're getting seven acres, effectively seven acres. So therefore you can charge, you can, you know, command a higher price for it. And I think he, um, you know, used it to show his, 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 uh, his acreage was, you know, more valuable than the market was getting credit for. And, you know, he, he may very well be right. I mean, I'm, not a reservoir engineer, so I don't know 100%, but, you know, in the Permian, at least, there are these many different zones, 7 to 11, depending on where you are, and a lot of them are producing, you know, very good rock, producing very good results. So anyways, this concept of net effective acres, that seems to be what Sanchez did. Um, they they basically, you know, assigned each, you know, the well, the, I think the best way to do is look at the slide from their January 17th analyst day. What it did, it showed a blow-up version of their Eagle Ford position broke down into four zones, which, you know, implies a well of some sort in each zone. And what was interesting, it included not just the Comanche and Katarina, which are the company's two marquee assets, but also the Javelina and the Maverick as well. Um now, like I mentioned, um, the number of targetable zones or, or band of hydrocarbon-bearing rock where you can run a horizontal well within the Eagleford was a, a major selling point that Sanchez used, as shown by the, the slide that I mentioned. They indicated four zones within their acreage, and that contributed to the well count. Now, what the problem is at this point is that I'm not sure to the extent which that holds true across their acreage. I think they've got some results from Katarina Well, which it, which suggests four zones, but some of the more command, recent Comanche results indicate there may be only two in the lower Eagleford. Um, their wells in the upper Eagleford haven't been as promising, so they're focusing on the lower Eagleford. So um, anyways, they do say this number is updated once a year, so it'll be interesting to see what the uh, 10K for 2018 says. Thanks. So now we know what Sanchez thinks, and we, we definitely understand these concepts. I'm curious, what are the other companies in the Eagleford saying? Uh, right. So uh, I, I reviewed a handful of operators across the Eagleford, including uh, Penn Virginia, Chesapeake, SM Energy, and some other ones. Uh, and none of them seemed to use a location count methodology that was similar to Sanchez's. Chesapeake and SM um, have acreage contiguous to Comanche and the Western Eagleford, so they're probably the best comps. Uh, now, with those companies, location count seemed more a function of the SEC rules governing undeveloped reserves, under which reserves are reserves and location is location if a development plan has been adopted indicated that these locations are scheduled to be drilled within a five-year period. Uh, under this criteria, Penn Virginia, for example, which has been going gangbusters in the oiler part of the Eagle for this year, has actually lowered locations due to factors including reduced lateral lengths and changes in its development program. Um, Chesapeake doesn't really give a location count, um, but just in terms of spacing, they have discussed spacing in the Eagleford of 500 to 660 feet. SM Energy's location count also seems to be based on the SEC criteria. 
in their 2018 planning presentation, they say they have about 5,200 gross-operated drilling locations, of which 3,500 are in the Permian. They see a bit less than 2,000 locations as economic, and by economic, they mean that uh, they deliver an IRR of around 20%. Now, of these bit less than 2,000 locations, about 13,000 I'm sorry, 1,350, uh, 1,350 are in the Permian, so that leaves about 700 or so for the Eagleford. Now, it's interesting, on the first quarter earnings call in May, Herbert Vogel, SM's Executive Vice President of Operations, indicated that the company was targeting two zones in the Eagleford, the upper and local, lower Eagleford. They didn't subdivide them into two separate zones or you know, get another way of getting a, a count of four zones. Um, and within these two zones, their wells were spaced at a minimum of 625 feet in the lower Eagleford and 625 to 2,500 feet in the upper. Um, and he revealed this guidance on their second quarter call in August. So they actually are going a bit wider in the upper while keeping the standard um, 600 and change feet in the lower. Thanks, Jim. This, this has been great and something that we'll definitely uh, continue to, to follow, both specifically to Sanchez, uh, the uh, specific operators that you mentioned, but then, of course, how these concepts really are going to affect overall production going forward. So thank you for that, uh, Jim. And Karen, back to you. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg. <laughs>